You are now listening to the July 4th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Last time, we saw how Absalom assassinated Amnon and ran away to his grandfather in Geshur. You may recall how David graciously brought him back to Jerusalem. Then we learn about Absalom's growing rebelliousness against his father. Today, we will see how it develops further and, in fact, turns into a tragic father-son conflict that shook up the whole nation. Our stories for today come from 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7 to chapter 16, verse 19. When it had been four years since David accepted Absalom back from his exile, Absalom went to see King David. Absalom asked for permission to go to Hebron. He said when he was in Geshur, he made a vow to God that he would go to Hebron and give an offering of thanksgiving if he were ever brought back to Jerusalem. Of course, he was making things up and was just using his father's trust in him. This request to be sent to Hebron was part of Absalom's plot against his father. You see, Hebron was a special city with political significance. It was where David first became king over Judah. When David moved the capital to Jerusalem from Hebron, people in Hebron were not happy about that decision. They felt slighted and thought David didn't care about them. Maybe they felt like second-class citizens after those in Jerusalem. Absalom intended to capitalize on this discontent to his advantage. As Absalom was heading to Hebron, he sent spies to all the tribes of Israel with a secret message. He told them to declare that Absalom become the king of Hebron as soon as they heard the sound of the trumpet. Everything fell into place for Absalom, and David heard about what happened. He was devastated at the news of his son's rebellion. Now David faced a dilemma. If he stayed in Jerusalem and fought the rebellion force, Jerusalem would be damaged. In the end, David decided to leave Jerusalem to save the city from war. As he was leaving, he left ten concubines behind to take care of the palace. Initially, Zadok the priest, all the Levites with him, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God, and Abiatar the priest also wanted to leave Jerusalem with David. But David did not allow that. He asked them to take the Ark of the Covenant back to the city reasoning if he should find favor in the eyes of the Lord, then God would bring him back to Jerusalem to see the ark again. He asked the two priests to keep him posted of the development in Jerusalem during his absence. With his back on Jerusalem, David crawled up the Mount of Olives, weeping with his head covered and walking barefoot. The whole procession of David, his family, and the people was laden with sorrow walking and weeping together. Then someone told David that Ahithophel, who was considered the shrewdest of the counselors, was among the conspirators with Absalom. During that time, the people of Israel trusted Ahithophel's counsels equal to the words that came from God. David became deeply concerned since someone like that was supporting Absalom. Everything seemed to be stacked up against him. At that moment of discouragement and despair, David prayed to God. After hearing David's prayer, God prepared someone to help David. It was his friend, Hashai. As the whole evacuating procession moved slowly, Hashai was waiting for David with his outer garment torn and dust on his head. He told David that he would follow him. But David said to him to return to Jerusalem and to convince Absalom 
that he would be Absalom's servant and serve him faithfully as he did with his father. Once he gained Absalom's trust, Hushai could help David to thwart Ahithophel's counsel. Following David's plan, Hushai returned to Jerusalem as Absalom was also arriving in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, David met Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan. When he was five years old, his grandfather Saul, his father Jonathan, and his father's brothers were all killed in a battle against the Philistines. At that time, to avoid certain death, his nanny who was taking care of him took him and tried to run away. But in a rush, she dropped him by accident, and Mephibosheth became lame. Since then, Mephibosheth was living in a house in the east of the Jordan River in obscurity, concealing he was a descendant of the royal family. To talk more about Mephibosheth and Ziba, we need to go back a few years. After David became king of Israel, he searched for Saul's descendants. It was to keep his promise to his friend Jonathan that he would take care of his family. When he found out one of Jonathan's sons was still alive, David called him into his palace. That was Mephibosheth. Upon meeting him, David returned to him everything that had belonged to his grandfather, King Saul, and gave him the privilege of eating at the king's table. Since then, Mephibosheth served David loyally. Now Ziba had seen Saul's servant, so David appointed him to take care of Mephibosheth's property. Since then, Ziba worked as the caretaker of Mephibosheth's property. However, Ziba also began coveting the property for himself and his children. When David left Jerusalem, choosing to retreat rather than to fight against his son Absalom, Ziba saw that as an opportunity to usurp all of Mephibosheth's property. Ziba came to see David on the road and provided food and showed kindness. Of course, that was part of his plan to frame Mephibosheth. Ziba lied to David that the reason Mephibosheth did not follow David and remained in Jerusalem was because Mephibosheth believed the people of Israel would return his grandfather Saul's kingdom back to him. David must not have had the time to think this through carefully. He gave all of Mephibosheth's property to Ziba, taking Ziba's word at face value. When David arrived at a place called Baharim, he had to bear the insults from one of the surviving members of the house of Saul and from the tribe of Benjamin. His name was Shimei. He came out and cursed David publicly and repeatedly. David's men wanted to silence Shimei by killing him, but David stopped them. Here is what David said in verses from 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 10 to 12. But the king said, What if he curses because the Lord has told him? Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? Then David said to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now, this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. David told his men to leave Shimei alone just in case his cursing came from God. Maybe, just maybe, after seeing his afflictions, David thought God might return good things to him instead of the curse. David remembered what God said about the sword would never leave his house because of his sins, and he was waiting for God's mercy, humbly, accepting all the tribulations. In the meantime, Absalom and all the people that followed him arrived in Jerusalem. It was easy for Absalom to take over Jerusalem because the city had been vacated, with his father choosing to retreat rather than fight against his son. There were only the concubines whom David had left to care for the place. 
As Absalom entered Jerusalem, there was someone that greeted him first. It was David's friends, Hushai. He came back to Jerusalem as David asked him to. Hushai hailed Absalom as if he was the conqueror of Jerusalem. Long live the king! Long live the king! But Absalom was puzzled and questioned Hushai because Absalom knew Hushai was his father's friend. So Absalom asked Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? But Hushai responded wisely as David instructed him. No, for whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Besides, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. Absalom was then convinced and believed Hushai. So how do you think the struggle between King David and his son Absalom will unfold? We'll continue next time from Story of Kings. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Somebody asked me, um, why does God have so many names? Why does God reveal so many names? Um, it's an interesting question, and it's interesting that I read something about that right after somebody had asked me that question. One theologian said, no matter what situation you find yourself in life, you'll find a name of God to comfort and guide you in that moment. Isn't that awesome? That is really true. No matter, again, God could have just revealed one name and said, this is who I am. I'm, I'm Elohim. I'm Yahweh. You know, just one name. But time and again throughout the scripture, he's giving us all these different names. And it's like, why? Because those names minister to us in our times when we, when we find ourselves in the valley or if we find ourselves on the mountaintop. God has a name for us in every situation. And I hope this sermon is an encouragement to you. Well, today we come to one of the names of God that you would think be, would be really easy to cover. But ironically, it's one of the names of God that actually has some controversy surrounding it. And the name that I am talking about is Jehovah Rapha. Okay, so let's just practice our Hebrew. Say it with me. Jehovah Rapha. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, which translated, of course, means the God who heals. The God who heals. Now, the reason this particular name of God has some controversy surrounding it is because Christians take different views of what it means for God to heal. So, for example, there are some within the Christian community who take this to mean that it is God's will to always heal. And there are good, godly people that hold this position. Um, the idea is that God doesn't want his children to suffer. And the people that hold this position, God doesn't want his people to suffer. It is God has revealed himself as a healer, so we should expect healing. We should expect to see people being cured of cancer and people getting up from wheelchairs and the blind receiving their sight. This is the expectation within a particular segment of Christianity, even to the point of the dead being raised. Just last month, and I'm not saying this, I'm just saying this because I want you to know this, just last month a church in Northern California made national news when they began to praying for a, two, a girl, a two-year-old girl in their congregation who had passed away for her to be raised from the dead. And I'm not faulting for them for that. I'm just letting you know that within the Christian community, there are those that really believe that, hey, God is a healer and we should expect him to be healing people all the time. Um, we, we should expect this. And this position, of course, seems to garner some support because every time you turn on the television, uh, you're going to see people, faith healers, you're going to see people healing people on television. Uh, many of the faith healers today, I mean, they're all over the, the airwaves. And again, I'm not knocking them at all. I'm just saying they're there. And they look like they're healing people, so maybe that is what we should expect from God. Maybe we sh it should be our expectation that God heal us, heal people all the time. And uh, of course, there are those within the Christian community that take a different position. And those that take this different position, these people will say, well, God absolutely can heal. He can absolutely heal anybody he wants, anytime he wants. They take a slightly different position, and their position is, it's just not God's will to heal people all the time, at least not in this lifetime. And so I hope you can begin to see, you have Christians over here, Christians over here, and so this name actually has some tension with it. As a matter of fact, as I broach this subject today, there are some of you in here probably like, you know, gulp, where is he going to go with this? Because you might have a particular view of God's healing, uh, and, and so this can be a sensitive, sensitive subject. Um, that's why I'm, I'm not even kidding when I... When I going to say what I'm about to say. The church today is desperately in need, not only of a thoroughly biblical understanding of the doctrine of healing, but I would also say the doctrine of suffering. Suffering. We need a thoroughly biblical doctrine of both of these areas, because if we mess up in one or both of them, we're going to be off and our theology is going to be off. So on that, let's get into this. So we are first introduced to the name Jehovah Rapha in the book of Exodus, just again after Israel is led out of slavery in Egypt. And so we are going to be in Exodus 15 today, and it is my honor, church, to present to you the word of God today. If you have your Bibles and would like to turn there, you can. We have uh, Bibles in the pews in front of you. I'll be reading from the screen up here, but this is Exodus 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, they, uh, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because the water was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Anybody want to guess what Marah means? Some of you are afraid you're like Jesus, right? Just in case, just in case, we're going to say the most spiritual thing we can think of. And the people grumbled 
against Moses. And I don't blame him because if you've ever been thirsty and you haven't had access to a drink, it can be maddening, can it? It it totally can. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Remember, capital L-O-R-D means what? Yahweh or Jehovah, the Latinized version, Yahweh or Jehovah. I am the Lord, your God. Incidentally, I don't know if I shared this last week, but it dawned on me when I transfer the when I copy the scriptures from like BibleGateway.com and I transfer them into PowerPoint, it's changing Lord to L capital. It makes it all lowercase. And so I did, I, thankfully I caught it. Um, and so now I, and it's, I also think it's changing some of my scriptures as well. I don't know why, but, um, you'll see later on, I have one of the scriptures wrong. It's not my fault. It's PowerPoint. It's, It's PowerPoint. So Jehovah Rapha is truly one of the most comforting names of God there is in the Bible. Even though there's controversy surrounding it, it is truly one of the most comforting names. And here's why. It is the ever-present reminder that there is nothing whatsoever outside the power and sovereignty of God. Amen? The Lord can heal anyone of anything, anytime he wants. It is the ever-present reminder that every cell in your body is under the sovereign care of God. Every cell, every microorganism in your body is under the direct control and sovereignty of God. And this has radical implications today. Why? Because there's this disease that's sweeping through Asia and has made it to the shores of the United States, and it's called the coronavirus. The coronavirus. And it's, it's, uh, so this topic has a real important um, bearing on us today. God can heal anyone of anything at any time he wishes. Psalm 103, 2 and 3 says, Bless the Lord, that is Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Psalm 147, 2 and 3, The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, Jehovah, builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Isaiah 30, 26 says, Moreover, the light of the moon will be as light as the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Perhaps one of the most famous examples where God intervened to heal someone in the Bible was King Hezekiah. Now, if you don't know who King Hezekiah was in the old Testament, Israel had Israel, Israel had a whole host of kings, okay? There's Israel and Judah. They had a whole host of kings. Most of them were evil. Most of them were bad, but a few of them were good. And King Hezekiah was one of the good ones, but he became ill. And we read about this in 2 Kings chapter 20. And so here's what it says. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, son of Amos, came to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die. You shall not recover. Now, remember, I'm going to stop right here. If I ever, I told you, if God ever comes to you and says, do you want to be a priest or a prophet? You always want to be a priest because the prophets always have bad news. (laughs) And here's another example of where the prophet has bad news, right? The prophet has bad news. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh, Jehovah, saying, Now, Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness, and with a whole heart have I done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh Jehovah, the God Elohim of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. Jehovah Rapha at work. Now, of course, in the New Testament, we see Jehovah Rapha in Christ himself because Jesus was God in the flesh. He was God in the flesh. So Jehovah Rapha, who were introduced in the Old Testament, this God who's healing the nation of Israel, manifests himself in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And so we would expect to see his healing ministry um, displayed throughout his ministry. And that's exactly what we see. And so Luke 7, not John 7, I tell you this is PowerPoint. It's not me. Luke 7, 20 and 22 um, says this. So fix that on your uh, sermon outlines. It says this, 
When the men had come to him, they said, okay, so let me just set the context. John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one or should we expect another? Okay, so that's what's happening here. And when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now it says this, in that hour, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So Jesus is fully at work here. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news, and the preached to them. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't even say, yes, I'm the Messiah. He says, just look at the fruit of my ministry. Everybody's being healed. Uh, the The blind are receiving sight, the deaf are hearing. Let that be a testimony to John that I am who I claim to be. Of course, God isn't limited to just healing Physically, he also heals in other ways. I mean, he healed the waters of the people of Israel when they needed water to drink. But we also see him, for example, healing mental affliction, spiritual fatigue, emotional suffering, anxiety, and worry. Listen, if it's broken, our God can heal it. Amen? If it's broken, our God can fix it. He is truly Jehovah Rapha. And that's why I said this is one of, even though this name has controversy surrounding it, it is truly one of the most comforting names. There's nothing outside the sovereignty and control of our God. Every cell in my body is under his control. Everything is under his divine control. So universally across the board, I have no doubt that all Christians believe that God can heal. We all believe that. He can heal anyone of anything at any time he wants. This is where it gets sticky. Should it be the guaranteed right and expectation that God heal all believers all the time in this lifetime? And that's where it gets sticky. And that is precisely where having a biblical understanding of the doctrine of suffering is critically important. That is right. There is a doctrine of suffering. And you want to make sure that we are clear, crystal clear on this. So here's the deal. Time and again, the Bible reveals instances where God does not immediately eradicate suffering. Even for his own people, Israel or the church. Time and again. We see again him healing all over the place, but time and again he doesn't. But rather, he allows suffering, he allows disease, he allows death, and uses it to serve his greater purposes. And one of the big reasons that God allows his children to endure suffering is that it is a means for him to manifest his power, glory, and majesty. That is right. God uses suffering of his children, the suffering of his children, to display his power, glory, and majesty. So, for example, in John chapter 11, we read this account. Some sisters come to Jesus because their brother Lazarus is very, very sick. And this is what it says. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. My, I love Lazarus. He's sick. It's not going to end in death. And, but here's why God is allowing it. Here's why Jesus is allowing it. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Fascinating. You know, what's interesting about this. What happened to Lazarus? He dies. (laughs) So he did die, but it doesn't end in death because what did Jesus do? He raised him from the dead. He raised him from the dead. And who gets the glory when Jesus raises people from the dead? Jesus. Yes. So here's Lazarus enduring sickness. He even dies. And the reason for it wasn't because Lazarus was a sinner or that God was punishing him or, or that he lacked faith. It was because God was doing a work through him so that he might be glorified through the life of Lazarus. We read a similar incident in John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a, blind, uh, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The reason that this child of mine is suffering is because I have a mighty work to do through him, through his life. He didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. And you know, that's often the case when sickness comes to us. It's the first thing we all think, because I think it too. It's like, is God punishing me? Have I done something wrong? The answer is no. No, because God has a million different reasons that he would allow us to go through suffering. And one of the reasons is so that he can display his power and glory through us. And that is really, really important to remember. And so that is why when we are dealing with a sickness or a disease in our own life or in the life of someone we love, as much as we might want God to bring about immediate healing, and we always do, of course we do, 
We must also be open to the idea that God has an even greater purpose that he is seeking to accomplish in allowing that suffering into our lives. And folks, listen very carefully. This, is, this may be the most important thing I say today. It takes a very, level, a very mature level of thinking to think that way. It takes a very mature level of thinking to say, you know what? God has allowed this sickness into my life and I believe that he can glorify himself through it. It's hard to accept it, but the mature person will. By the way, do you want to know the type of person who's willing to accept this? It is the type of person who is radically committed to the glory of God above all things. And folks, this is truly the calling of the Christian life. The primary reason you and I exist is to bring glory to God, is it not? The Westminster Confession of Faith asks this question, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and know and and enjoy him forever. It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Folks, the reason that you were put on this planet is to bring glory to God. And I'm going to tell you right now, the church in many cases has it backwards. We are preaching a man-centered, self-centered gospel in which God is here to serve us. We are not here to serve him. And we have to restore that which is right. We, God does not exist to make us happy. We exist to glorify him. That is why you're here. Your life is but a breath. Your life is but a vapor. You're here for a moment. And that moment that you are here, you are here for a reason. That God might be glorified through every cell in your body, through every fiber in your being. You are here to glorify him. Don't ever lose sight of that. And if you ever, this church or any other church is preaching anything other than the radical glory and God-centeredness of the gospel of God and Christ, run, run. You don't want this life to be about you. You want it to be about God. God being glorified, listen to this. This is tough, but this is the mature way of thinking. God being glorified is more important than my personal happiness, comfort, and even health. Do you believe it? As a matter of fact, let me take it a step further. God being glorified is more important than life itself. That is the call of the Christian life. If God be glorified in the laying down of my life, then by all means, my life is yours for the taking, Lord. Because I am not here to save my life. I am here to do what? Lose it for the sake of the gospel. I am not here to save my life. The gospel is not a call for me to save my life. The gospel is a call for me to lose my life. No greater love than this than when one man lay his life down for another. No greater love than when one man lays his life down for the glory of God. God, if you be glorified in my suffering, so be it. If you be glorified in the laying down of my life, so be it. My life is yours because I exist to glorify you. Period. End of sentence. That's my chief and highest aim in this life is to glorify you. And we have lost that in the church. We really have. We have created a man-centered church where we're trying to attract people by worldly means, tricks and gimmicks in which we're trying to appease their conscience and make them feel good about themselves instead of radically pointing them to giving their life away in service to the glory of God. Amen? I'm sorry, if you feel like I'm yelling at you, it's because I'm yelling at you. (laughs) But this gets, this is my wheelhouse. This is what drives me. I'm telling you, um, I could preach an easier gospel. I could preach a happier gospel but you don't want me to do that. You don't want me to do that. I can preach a more man-centered. You just don't want that. One of the ways that God displayed his power and glory through the suffering of an individual was none other than the apostle Paul. You know this well. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul's receiving these revelations and they're so immaculate, so amazing that it would be natural for him to be filled with pride. God is giving me these revelations. A thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's suffering, Paul's suffering was all about glorifying who? God. It's all about Paul's suffering resulted in God's grace and God's power being made perfect in weakness, being manifested for everyone to see. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. This is what Paul says. Paul's life was not a living testimony to his own power and strength, but a living testimony to the power and strength of God through him. And it was most manifested when he was at his weakest We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. And I think that's on purpose. I do. Because we can almost insert anything we're going through into that passage and go, I have a thorn in the flesh too. I will tell you, I think it's a very good evidence to believe that Paul was losing his eyesight. 
Paul says in one other part of the scriptures, I know that if you could rip out your eyes and give them to me, you would. He said that, I think, he wrote it in the scriptures to one of the churches. He said, I know if you could rip out your eyes and give them to me, you, you would. At another place he writes, see, I write this in my own hand and with what large letters I write. So there's a good chance, I think, he was probably losing his eyesight. But again, it doesn't say. So we don't know what this was. We know he was suffering. But in his suffering, Paul wasn't suffering because he had sinned or that God was punishing him. Just the opposite. God was going to manifest his power and his glory through Paul in his weakness. In his weakness. And so Paul says, if that's how God's going to be glorified, I'm going to boast all the more when God brings me low. I'm going to boast all the more when I'm going through trials. I'm going to go boast all the more when I'm facing trials and sickness and disease. Things that bring me low in life bring God glory through my life. And so he boasts in those very things. Of course, this isn't the only reason, of course, God might allow suffering into the life of a believer so that his glory, power, and majesty can be displayed in that person. He's also doing it for our good. He's doing it for your good and my good. He's using it to grow us into the image of his son. We know these scriptures well. Romans 5 says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not disappoint. Listen, folks, we live in a world where when difficulties come and trials come, they mourn, not us, not us who are believers. We rejoice. Why? Because we know that God is working on us and conforming us into the image of his son. And when we, the more that we are conformed into the image of his son, the more that we bring him glory. And folks, that is why you are here. That is why I am here. We are here to glorify God with every cell in our body. And Lord, take away anything that keeps me from doing that every day of my life. Remove any idols, remove any people, remove anything that keeps me from doing that. And Lord, if it means you bringing me low, that your power and glory might be manifested through my humility and my being brought low, praise God, do it. Lord, if it means laying down my life so that you might be glorified, go for it. My life is yours. I'm telling you folks, that is a radical way to think. That is radically, a radically mature way to think. James 1 and 2 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Folks, remember, God's number one goal for your life is to transform you into the image of his son. It is your spiritual maturity. That's his number one goal for you, to be transformed into the image of his son so that you might glorify him with every ounce of life that he gives you during this lifetime. But here's the deal. God's goal for us should be the same goal for ourselves. Our spiritual maturity, our being conformed into the image of his son should dominate our thinking. But too often it does not. And you want to know why? Here's why. It is because we live in a fallen world where physical comfort, physical well-being, and physical pleasure takes precedence over spiritual maturity every day of the week. We live in a fallen world where you are constantly being told it's all about you, your comfort, your well-being, take care of number one, look out for number one. The gospel is just the opposite of that. The call of the Christian is just the opposite of that, but that is the world we live in. And folks, it should not surprise you and I in the least that our world has it backward on this issue. The world is seeking comfort and pleasure and peace. They're running from any type of suffering. It's because that's their greatest goal. That's not our greatest goal. Our greatest goal is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It dominates our thinking. But what really breaks my heart is that many within the Christian community are not operating with a biblical worldview with regard to suffering. I see many faith healers on television and in other places claiming wholeheartedly that it is God's will to heal every Christian every time. All Christians need to do is claim their healing, receive their healing, speak their healing into existence as if Christians can speak things into existence. Christians cannot speak things into existence. Only God can speak things into existence. The danger, of course, is when the healing doesn't come, the person who has been waiting for the healing can be led to believe that it was their lack of faith why they're not healed. It's your fault. Perhaps you're a sinner and that's why you have that disease. And perhaps it's your lack of faith is why you're not being healed. This is what many are being told within the Christian community. Instead of saying, listen, God's not punishing you. He's bringing you low so that he can manifest his power through you, his glory through you, so he can transform you into the image of his son. And if he's not healing you, it's not because you lack faith. It's because he has got a purpose for you in it. Do you see how radically different those messages are? 
I've got to be honest. I can't think of anything more hurtful to tell someone who is going through a period of suffering that God wants to heal them, but he can't because you lack faith. It's your fault. And trust me, I've heard firsthand accounts of people who have attended healing crusades desperate for healing, only to leave feeling let down, guilty, and really confused. Why wasn't I let on the stage? Why wasn't I healed? Why am I going home in the wheelchair? Why am I going home blind or still lacking the hearing that I want? Never forget, it was at the height of his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed the most, one of the most radical prayers ever prayed in all the scriptures. He said this, and going a little farther, he fell down on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Remember, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And so he's praying, Lord, let this cup pass from you. Who wouldn't pray that? There's nothing wrong with praying a prayer like that. We pray. It is okay to pray, God, Jehovah Rapha, let this cup pass from me. Lord, heal me. And I got to tell you, there are many times I prayed for people to be healed. Many times you have prayed for people to be healed for this cup to pass from them. And that's exactly what happens. God does that very thing. But if he doesn't, has God failed? Have you failed? Or is it that God's got a purpose? That our theology of suffering needs to be biblical enough to say that God even uses suffering in the life of the believers to manifest his glory, conform us into the image of his son. Not as I will, but as you will. It's those last three words, by the way, that are so very important. What was most important to Jesus was that the will of his father be done in and through his life, even if it meant that he be tortured and crucified. That's a mature level of thinking right there, folks. Father, I don't want to have to go through this. But if this is your will, then so be it. Because your glory, your purposes are what dominate my thinking. In a world where you are being told, and in a church where you are being told, make it all about you, we see our master, our savior, Jesus Christ, making it all about the father. Making it all about him. And again, folks, this goes back to the whole point of why you are here on earth. You are here to glorify God in every circumstance that you find yourself in. Jesus wanted the will of the Father to be done, even if it meant being crucified on a cross. And folks, that needs to be our very attitude when it comes to the suffering that we endure. We are most certainly invited to ask God to heal us. And in some cases, again, I have no doubt that he will do that. I've seen him do that. But if he doesn't, it's then that we continue to walk by faith, trusting that God has his reasons and that we can trust him every step of the way. By the way, I do agree with the faith healers, at least on one point. It is God's will to bring full healing to his people. Where I disagree with them is on the timing of that healing. The Bible makes it clear that God's ultimate healing of his people will come in the new heavens and the new earth, right? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen? Folks, that day is coming. No more backaches, no more pain, no more headaches, no more migraines, Right? All of this is going away, just not yet. Now, I've got to conclude. I'm going to wrap this up because I'm out of time. I want to conclude with this thought. This is the most important thought. The, the most important way in which God heals us, Jehovah Rapha heals us, is the forgiveness of our sins. He washes us clean from our guilt. He raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Do you realize that you, if you are a Christian, you have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. There has been a resurrection in your life, whether you know it or not. You were once spiritually dead. You are now spiritually alive. That is because Jehovah Rapha did a work in your life. Amen? Listen to me. This is very important, what I'm about to say. The most important thing that mankind needs in this lifetime isn't physical healing. As important as, and as good as that might be, what mankind needs most in this lifetime isn't physical healing, it is spiritual healing. Jehovah Rapha, when you hear that name, first and foremost, thank him that he has forgiven you of your sins. Thank him that he heals you of your diseases. And even if he doesn't, praise his name because he's working through you for his glory and your good. Amen? It's not that you've sinned. It's not that you lack faith, that you're going through what you're going through. God's got a purpose for you in it. Believe him. Second Corinthians says this, so we do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is re being renewed day by day. Amen. Listen, I'm going to have people up here to pray. If we can pray, if something's broken in your life, physically, spiritually, whatever, let us pray for that. Let's ask God to heal today. But no one understand this. If he doesn't, 
If he doesn't, or if he doesn't do it right now, today, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. Don't doubt God's goodness. He's doing a work in and through you. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you. You are Jehovah Rapha. We look to you. You are the God that heals things that are broken. God, you healed the waters for the Israelites. You healed the sick in the time of Jesus. And God, you have answered our prayer so many times when we have sought you for healing. But God, there are times when you don't heal. And God, it's easy to begin to doubt your goodness. Maybe we think we're guilty of something, that we lack faith, that somehow it's our fault. Lord, let us cast that stuff aside. and Let us know that even then you got us, you sustain us, you uphold us, you've got a purpose in it. I pray for anyone right now, God, that is suffering and that needs healing, that they would continue to trust you with your whole heart, walk with you every step of the way, each and every day, encourage their faith, Lord. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Son of God Only you Can save me Suffering on the cross You gave your all Willingly paid the cost For me Now I am free
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. My name is Deborah Choi. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. We are living in an unprecedented time of global shaking. Everything that can be shaken is being shaken all around us. It seems like there is not a person or a nation whose lives have not been impacted by it. In the midst of this fierce storm, who is the anchor of your soul? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Isn't this a powerful truth? We belong to Jesus whose kingdom is forever unshaken. More than any other time in the history of our nation, we need to put our hope in this truth and trust Jesus, who is the only anchor of this shaken world. Last week, I watched an inspirational video of the United Nations luncheon, where the First Lady of the United States of America, Melania Trump, spoke with graceful beauty and loving compassion about the next generation. I was moved by her eloquent speech in which she said, We must teach each child the values of empathy and communication that are at the core of kindness, mindfulness, integrity, and leadership, which can be only taught by example. Nothing could be more urgent or worthy a cause than preparing future generations for adulthood with true moral clarity and responsibility. To achieve this, we must come together for the good of our children, because through them, our future will be defined. The definition of the word defined in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is to determine or identify the essential qualities or meaning of. Her beautiful words stir up the following question in my heart. What kind of nation do you want to leave behind as a legacy for our next generation? Recently, as I was praying for America, God reminded me of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, which says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. My brothers and sisters, let's unite our hearts and war for our nation in intercession, believing that God will hear our heart cry and restore America. Father, we come before you humbly repenting of all our sins and crying out for your mercy and grace for America. Please forgive us for setting our affections on this world and serving our idols of entertainment, money, power, ambitions, sports, and addictions. Lord, forgive us for our racism, prejudice, immorality, hatred, and discrimination. We have grieved your heart and greatly sinned against you. As we seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, hear our heart cry from heaven, forgive our sins, and heal our nation. Lord, bless America with spirits of repentance, reconciliation, and healing, especially between African Americans and the police force, and bring your divine unity among every race and every generation. Renew this nation by your Holy Spirit. Empower us with your strength. Free us from the power of sin and cover us with your divine protection. Father, your word commands us to pray for all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Out of obedience to your living word, we fervently pray for our President Donald Trump. Thank you for positioning him as the President of the United States of America for such a time as this. Cover him and his family with your divine protection and guide him continually with your wisdom and discernment as he leads our nation in this critical hour. Surround him with many godly counselors and strengthen him with your power so he can remain strong and resilient to accomplish your plans and purposes that you have assigned to him in this season. May those who plan their evil schemes to attack and destroy our president and our nation be exposed and brought to justice by our Lord Jesus Christ. God, deliver our nation from COVID-19 and every destruction. Heal every family who lost their loved ones and save us from all our enemies. You are the Lord of victory. This battle belongs to you. So we declare boldly that we will see a mighty deliverance and great victory over America. Jesus, you are the God of revival. Revive our seven spheres of influence in government, media, arts and entertainment, business, education, religion, and family. And restore America back to your original design of a God-fearing nation so it can fulfill divine destiny and impact the nations around the world for your glory. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.